0: Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at for the next month. And as I mentioned last week, um, this kind of was, I guess, just formed out of some time thinking about what would be good for us to go to after we were in Proverbs this summer. That's kind of what I do is it's um, always thinking what's next and in some ways trying to tie together series that we're in. And when we were in the Proverbs this summer, um, we were given a lot of good commands to obey. Don't be foolish, but be wise. It's kind of the overarching theme. Hard to miss that one. Maybe write that on your hand if you did. Note to self. Proverbs. Uh, Bobby, bringing the word on not being prideful, but being humble. Chris, not being lazy, but hardworking. Uh, Todd and Dave, kind of a combination of how we use our words, whether individually and how we speak, or also collectively in seeking wisdom. So, you know, lots to talk about with the tongue. And those are all wonderful commands, God glorifying in their aim. And they do really represent how Christians should think, speak, act, feel. All of it legitimate. But in the aftermath of it, The reality is most of us, if not all of us, fail to live up to that which we learn, and rather quickly. Since Chris's sermon on work, I have put off fixing my lawnmower while I put on fixing an Arnold Palmer. There's just something in me that's, you know, that's that's some effort over there. You know, the neighbors haven't called the HOA yet to turn me in. I guess the grass can get a little bit higher. I've got this new book I want to read. I've struggled to condescend, to be humble with my toddlers when they are fighting over a toy. And to explain to a toddler, I know that's just doomed for failure, but to try to help them see that sharing is a possibility in their little world, it's a lot easier for me to just take it and put it on a shelf they can't reach because I want to get back to said book. But what I'm really just teaching them... Is the opposite of humility. Hey, once you're big enough to just pull the thing out of the other person's hands, you get it. It's kind of what Dad's showing us. Why do I do this? Why do we do this? You know, underneath that is just the question of uh, what keeps us from doing that which we know is right. As we just said, the commands we are expected to obey, clearly laid out in the Word of God, also for our benefit. We know there is blessing that comes with obedience. James 1, it's not just the hearing of the word, but the man is blessed in the doing of it. We get all that. The problem we have is what holds us back from actually living it out. How would you answer that? How have you answered that when you've given counsel to someone else? Well, praise God that the answers aren't beyond us. They're actually right in front of us in God's word, and it is sufficient alone For our growth and becoming who God made us to be. That is what I've just described. It's it's the delta, the difference between uh, who we are and who we are actually to be. And we have to look past the tips and tricks of Christianity to get to the heart of how do I actually put it into practice? How do I become who God has made me in Christ? This holy, Christ-like new creation. In a word, we're asking, how do I become sanctified? How do I become more holy, more like Christ? And Romans 6, for many, is the go-to chapter. So that's why I chose it for this month to look at. Because I think we all come out of the Proverbs, or whatever you're reading on your own right now, hopeful, ambitious, reaching, desirous to change. And Romans 6 is going to explain how that change occurs. So follow with me. We'll be in it for the next couple weeks. We're just going to attempt to get through verses 1 through 7 this morning. So follow along as I read Romans 6, 1 to 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. The word of the living God, sanctify us in the truth, Father. Your word is truth. As I mentioned in the introduction, Proverbs and many passages in the scriptures like it with a lot of commands to obey, extolling righteous living, tell us what to do, but don't always explain everything behind how we are actually able to do it. And you know this, Christians, by experience that living the Christian life is more than you become a Christian and then just simply, naturally, somewhat automatically obey all the time. I mean, sure, with Vicky as my guide telling me to get to the point, <laughs> simplify it. Yes, that's the idea behind it, that we are transformed. So that we what we say we believe, what we profess, actually becomes what we practice. In reality, as we read today, there's more that we need to know about how this sanctification process works, this becoming more like Christ. And in my conviction, I believe that a lot of Christians don't do what the Bible tells them, not for lack of belief, not for lack of effort. Not for lack of good intentions, but for lack of understanding. In other words, ignorance. And maybe Satan's greatest trick, he is a deceiver, is to keep you ignorant so as to render you ineffective. He is well aware that the battle has been lost. That he can't undo what God has done in saving you. Romans 5. Let's just call it what it is. Romans 1 through 5. The righteousness of God in Christ. God is victorious in your justification. And that can never be undone. So because of that, what would then the the enemy of God want to do? If he can't undo your salvation. If it is God who justifies the ungodly, makes them godly. Takes away our unrighteousness and gives us the righteousness of Christ. If Satan can't undo that, his his last trick, his, his last grasp would be to keep you ignorant to all that you actually are in Christ, so to render you ineffective for Christ. So there's my conviction, I guess, is what I was saying, that that the goal of Satan is to keep us ignorant in order to keep us ineffective. If we really don't know what God's Word teaches about our new life in Christ and don't understand it, we will struggle to live it out. This is true in a lot of ways in life. Ignorance leads to a lot of ineffectiveness, Try to assemble Ikea furniture without Ikea, what's that thing called? User's manual, uh, assembly thing. Just go, try to figure out where 6,000 wooden pegs go without that thing showing you where you should put them all. You'll be an ineffective furniture assembler without the instruction manual on how to put it together. So to be ignorant is to be ineffective, and primarily if we're ignorant of what God's Word says, uh, and that ignorance can come a lot of different ways, by way of distraction. You know, There's other things more interesting than, like, we're going to talk about today. How am I dead to sin? I mean, really compelling stuff to the world, I'm sure. Come in and sit for an hour, and let somebody lecture you present to you how you are dead. Wow. Invigorating. And so if I'm distracted from it with other things, even right now in the midst of the assembling, but on the other hand, if I do know who I am in Jesus and what I'm capable of, then I can live effectively for God's glory. If I could understand And and here's the kicker on this thing. Romans 6 isn't going to help you understand by way of imperatives or commands of things to do. He's not going to tell you to be dead. He's just going to explain the reality of you being dead. It's already true. You just need to be aware of what's here. And that is the key to going from what you understand about your faith, your justification as a believer, to growing in Christ, your sanctification. It's being aware in all the fullness of what you have at your disposal. Recent trip up to uh, my homeland, Pittsburgh. Wonderful place. Say one night, you know, I I turned 42. I know I don't look a day over 41, but I turned 42 recently. And what if my dad says, son, you've been the most loyal to the Steelers And, you know, to eating sandwiches with me. All your other brothers, they have other pursuits. I want to pass some information on to you that will change your life. And um, he goes on to tell me that uh, it's been kept a secret in the family for generations. But I am the heir and great, great, great grandson to Andrew Carnegie. Steel magnate. Kingpin. Kingpin. Build an empire on the backs of Yinzers, putting train tracks down all around our country, producing the steel. Uh, Sold Carnegie Steel to U.S. Steel in 1901 for $450 million just for inflation today. It would be in the billions. And my dad says, Adam, we had to change the last name because we knew people would be coming for us. Um, I I want to give you a portion of the billions. This is what you're worth. Do you think immediately I would start doing things a little bit different? Like, yeah, Shannon, fill up with the good gas. Let's move on from... I mean, it's there for a reason. Immediately, a, a change in understanding my identity, and in particular, the riches of all that I have, should, would, could transfer in reality to a really new me. My teeth would be brilliantly shiny today. (laughs) Blinding, if you will. And that's what Paul is trying to unpack for the believer in Romans 6. He's trying to get you to understand the fullness of the riches of all that you have in Christ because that's all that you are. That's all who you are. You belong to him. You're in Christ. And it lands particularly in, in this chapter and what I just read on the idea of how do I actually become more like who I am? If I am in Christ, then how can I look more like him? How can I fight sin uh, with greater victory? How can I sin less? I mean, that's really where this begins and, and it's going to go. But it's not doing what Romans 12 eventually would do, which is to start telling you all the things you're supposed to do. It's just describing all the ways in which you are transformed so that it becomes a reality in your life when you attempt to do it. Now, a disclaimer on Romans 6. Lord willing, in the creek don't rise, we're going to move on to study the book of Daniel starting in September. So we have, I just wanted to hit this in three weeks, give us some some thoughts and um, exhortations on our sanctification, our growth in Christ. Um, In three sermons... And when I look at other guys who have preached on this, wrote commentaries on it, just so you know, um, if you know names like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher at Westminster Chapel in 1900s for 30 years, um, he had 19 sermons on these 23 verses. You think I go slow? <laughs> Same with guys like James Montgomery Boyce a Gray Barnhouse, these are all guys with, you know, they use three names, and that justifies them preaching 20 verses on, or 20 sermons in 23 verses. I just go by Adam Ashoff, so I'm just doing it in three. <laughs> I, genuine disclaimer, though, why I say that is because you're going to learn about your sanctification, the way that God transformed you to be more like Christ, and you're going to have more questions, I, I promise you. There are going to be things just like right out of the gate, that first question asked. You're going to go, what? I don't understand that. So stick around till next week and then the week after and email me in between. And you can ask that question, but just let this unfold in front of you and and don't walk out of here disappointed if you're still going, what does it mean that I've died to sin? It's okay. That's why we come back each week and we we exposit the word. We try to unearth everything that's there to help you to know it so that you can grow in it. So let's start with the question, a startling inquisition that Paul, the rabbi uh, rhetorician who has been teaching and preaching the gospel now for a few decades and probably is starting with this question in the aftermath of Romans 5.21. Grace is going to reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wonderful truth. Grace will reign. Shocking to the ears of legalists, those pious Jews who say, no, if righteousness is going to reign, I got to ride on the back of the law to be right. So he says something as shocking is Sin used to reign in death because you couldn't live up to the law that God has given to be righteous. Now, because of Christ and his death and resurrection, grace reigns. And you would think audiences would stand up and cheer. Well, clearly not, because Paul's mind immediately goes to the question that he's probably been asked by many a pious Jew or recovering pagan. lives in the flesh. Maybe even like those in Ephesus or Corinth uh, thought it's cool for us to sin and go on because we've heard about this Paul preaching about grace. So he could be asking this question in Romans 6.1 out of an opportunity to think, what would the religious person who says, I need the law to be right with God, or the Non-religious, the libertine, we'll call them. They take all the liberties there are in the book and then some. This question could come at it from either of those people. And here's the startling question. If grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Christ, what do we say to that? Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And again, like I'm saying, this could come at you from the legalist side of the ledger or the libertine. I'm going to put these two characters up, and I want to take a moment to explain. A legalist believes, like in when we went through Mark, that Jesus encountered the Pharisees, you had to attain righteousness by keeping God's law. Jesus says, no, I have come to fulfill the law, and I am the only one who ever live it perfectly, so that when I go to the cross and die, all people who have never been able to live up to the law can now trust in me that God has taken out the wrath that he deser- they deserve to receive. For they're not keeping the law of God perfectly, for being sinners. I take that wrath, I give them my righteousness, and they are redeemed. Grace reigns. So the legalist over here says, hmm, that would seem to lead to this idea, if that's really the gospel, the good news, then the rest of your life the law is obsolete. Why obey it all? Grace reigns. You're secure. And then the libertine over here, the person that may have heard that and said, Yes, grace reigns. I believe. Sign me up and I'll be going back to the bar in approximately five minutes because grace reigns. Isn't that nice? That's where this question comes from. Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Because just flip over to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 with me. There is a connection between God being glorified and us being recipients of grace. And Paul is not ashamed of it, because in Romans 1.16, he's not ashamed of the gospel, which is what? The power of God to the Jew and to the Greek. Those under the law and outside the law. The gospel is that good. Grace is that wonderful. Grace reigns. So in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, this doxology, this this sentence, it is one sentence in the original language, to praise to God, starts with blessed be God, and he moves in those, those 11 verses to talk about why we just, like we just sang, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit. He moves in that order, talking about all the blessings we have From God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And at the culmination of each of those sections, he says something like you see there in verse 6, talking about all that we have through God the Father in the Son, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. You see the connection? We praise God for the glory of His grace, because without grace, we got no chance. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 says that. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. So in Paul's heart, he is always praising the glory of God's grace. So somebody might ask, wait a second. If we're created, if the greatest end for which we exist is to glorify God, it seems to be he is most glorified when what? He shows the most grace to sinners. So how do I... How do I, wait, let me do that math. So if I sin more, he shows more grace, he gets more glory. Logically, yes. If my eldest son, using that HCA logic that they teach, comes to Shannon, and um, Shannon's fantastic on a daily basis. Um, keeps that house clean, uh, keeps those children intact, and keeps me fed. A plus. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a true miracle, because every day, um, everything is working against that in our home. All the forces of the universe go against a tidy home, Children being intact, as in one piece, five of them, and me coming home and, like, magic, wonderful dinner. And maybe he's picked up on that dad takes a moment sometime later in the evening to praise his mother for how she does it all. So he goes to his mom and says, Mom, you know, the way I see it, the bigger the mess, the more fights I might start. And the more distractions we can be to you preparing a fabulous dinner, you know, the more obstacles we put in your way and you still pull it off by 5:30, dad comes home and will give you more praise. Therefore, let freedom reign in this home. Toys everywhere, underwear on the ceiling fan, shooting off the walls, messes, let the creatures from the outside come inside. Let's go, bonkers. Because you have this ability, mom, to pull it all back together, neat and tidy. Dad walks in the door and is like, whew, hard day at the job. You know, I was in Romans 6, (laughs) hanging out, reading, a bunch of dead guys, really exhausting stuff. Where's the meatloaf? It's, You know? And then he sees all that you did, mom, and he will praise you. Shouldn't we then make it harder so that you get more praise? Boys under the age of five, from talking to you, Goeys, Cutlers, Heinz, all y'all, don't get any ideas from this, including Ashoff children. But that's the question. Shouldn't we make the bigger mess so you'll be praised more and all the mothers say in verse 2, may it never be? That's the answer Paul has to the person who says, well, if that's how giving God more glory works because of the glory of his grace, then shouldn't we just sin so he shows more grace so he gets more glory? That's the argument that could come from either the person that gets really nervous talking about grace or the person that's like, yes, pull up the dump truck of grace. It can come from either side. And Paul says, may it never be, and and it's, it's, it's an idiom in the Greek. It's the strongest expression for being aghast, At just the idea of something, not even the reality of it. Your old KJV says, God forbid. That's how utterly repulsive the thought that a believer, a Christian, we're talking to Christians, verse 1 of chapter 6, should continue in sin. That word continue is the word we are well acquainted with here. It's the word abide. And I've taught you on that word abide. It means to remain with, to dwell in. So this isn't like, oh, I messed up, I sinned today. This is, I'm gonna live in my sin because grace abounds. Verse 21, hey, grace reigns. I can live in my sin. And that's what the libertine, the person that's seeing grace not as something that removes you from sin or or gives you an escape from it, It enables it. You ever run into somebody like that? Accountability with somebody like that? Yeah, you know, just having a hard time. List off all these sins that they were listing off a month ago, six months ago, a year ago. No change. Says they're a Christian. But what's the out? Grace, y'all. Grace. Mm, Grace. Mm. Grace. That's the mentality there. But you also have to balance that out with the person over here. I mean, same thing, same accountability, same. You even mention the word grace. Like, no, don't give me none of that. Y'all need holiness. No grace for you. Shuts it down. Now, Paul shuts it down in verse 2. It's a startling inquisition, but so is his response. May it never be. You can't live that way. That's not how salvation works. And salvation does work. God designed it perfectly. All of what's true through Romans 1 to 5 about the righteousness of God being fulfilled in Christ and you get access to that righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus. All of it's wonderful, perfect plan because for the dead sinner who can't come to God out of his own desires needs that plan. But see, it doesn't just leave off at the fact that he just clears the sin from your account and leaves you as you are. Salvation is also transformation. You change from the inside when you become a Christian. And so to believe that you can continue in sin so that grace would increase is to lie against the idea that, salvation not just says, hey, one day in the by and by, I'll get to the pearly gates and Jesus pulls out the list and says, yeah, 1984, came to Christ, you're good. That that's all salvation was meant to do. I accepted Jesus as Savior. Back off. With no mention, does he actually have any power to change you? Does what you do after mean anything at all? And that's Paul's response. It can't be. May it never be. God forbid. And then he asks a question. He turns it around. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Again, that word continue in sin, verse 6, live in it, verse 2. Those are ideas of you are in it. You are daily doing it. You have resigned yourself to it. In fact, because of your misunderstanding of grace as it relates to your salvation, you even start to justify it. And so Paul has a strong question. How shall we? In fact, in the original it just reads, "We who died to sin." He just says, "We Christians have died to sin. How then shall we still live in it?" That's what he responds with. And you might be like, "Man, Adam, Paul, why you guys are just so serious about this thing? Like people really do this? People really will will abuse the idea of grace?" Um, yeah, I mean, clearly it's happening in here that Paul has to bring it up. In fact, if you just go back to um, Romans 3, 5 to 8, in his teaching upon this idea, he was being accused, he says, slandered, verse 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So it's legit. People are hearing Paul preach the gospel by grace through faith in Christ, and slandering him, saying, there's Paul, just letting everybody off the hook with that rain of grace. But if you turn to Jude, and you just have to turn to Jude, there's there's just one chapter. Verse 4. This is a letter to the church. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There's a problem, and it's this. Verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Sound like what's being asked in Romans 6, 1 and 2? Turning the grace of God into licentiousness. Uh, No law, no obedience, no commands to keep. Just grace is so great and reigns, do what you want to do. Turning the grace of God into licentiousness and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So it's happening in that first generation of Paul preaching the gospel that people are turning his gospel message into an excuse to sin. And it was, um, I was listening to Martin Lloyd Jones who. Preached the 19 sermons, I think it was, on Romans 6. And he starts by saying, look, if you preach the gospel correctly, this should be a question that follows. If you really preach a gospel of grace and not one of works, it should get some people asking that very question, or at least thinking it. Because if you stop short of preaching that gospel of grace that God doesn't save you based on your own righteousness. If you don't preach it all the way, you want to call it that, then you've probably put something in there that can make a self-righteous person think, ah, there is just that little portion that's up to me, isn't there? There's just that little thing that I bring to the table that makes me worth saving, that adds to my righteousness, So if you're never being asked this question, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, he he warns preachers listening to him. Are you somehow inserting a little bit of work into your gospel? Just enough that that, you would never, um, the, the radar on a legalist in your audience wouldn't go up and come down front afterwards and say, pastor, you made it sound like the gospel is such good news that I could be the worst sinner in the entire planet and have committed every single sin in the Bible, but come to God in repentance and put my faith in Jesus, and he just takes me just as I am. That's what you're saying. Is that the gospel? It is. It's that much good news. So Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, "This, this is what Romans 4 and 5 say it is. The God who justifies the ungodly. Grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But grace was never given to excuse sin, embolden sin, enable sin. Grace was given to be our escape from sin. It it gets you out of it. It doesn't leave you in it. Verse 3. And then he asks this question. So he, he throws that out there. How You have died to sin. How could you still possibly live in it? And then he gets to the answer to this problem. You don't misunderstand justification. In fact, the person that's worried about the gospel being too good and grace being too wonderful is understanding justification by faith alone through grace alone exactly right. He's not going to correct their understanding of justification. And he's not going to jump right to sanctification. Put on, put on, put on, put on, put on, put on. Right, that solves it. No, he teaches them a doctrine that's not taught enough. He teaches them about their union with Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know? Hey, take heart this moment, pause from the preacher. If you're like, what in the world? This, Adam, is new to me, at the very least. So Paul is saying to the church in Rome, do you not know? That's like a real question he's asking them. It can be possible to be around Christianity and to think you got it, and then somebody brings teaching to you from the word of God right in front of your very own face, and wait, I don't get it. I didn't know this. Friend, you're in good company. I'm not saying, like, it's good company to have bad theology. I'm saying, since the beginning of the church, guys like Paul have to say, don't you know this? Now, I want to ask Paul, how were they supposed to know this? This is like, Romans is your life, heaviest duty teaching. Mind you, chapter 1, he never even got to see these people in Rome yet. So however they're getting this teaching, it wasn't from Paul. And he's expounding upon the gospel, and yet he has to say, do you not know? So on one hand... Relax, breathe a sigh of the relief, and then on the other hand, lock in, because you're supposed to know this. You need to know about union with Christ. Verse 3, don't you know that all of us believers who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Oh, I am sorry. I was so excited to get the verse 3, but we didn't even move on in the, in the notes. <laughs> so the startling question, now we're in the surprising illustration. The answer to the question, sorry, move on. I know you're all saying that already. Thanks, Vic. Don't you know this? You, you who have died to sin, you can't still live in it, and here's why. You have been immersed into Christ Jesus. Why did I just use that word? Because that's what the word baptism means. In the original Greek languages, Paul would have used it. It's this idea of being overwhelmed, drowned in, immersed by, so wrapped up in identification with it. The best picture is like somebody drowning, immersed under the water. Hence why we dunk, not drip. But this is a dry verse. He's not trying to make a point about water baptism. He's using it as a picture, as a surprising illustration. Now, I can admit, not knowing Paul's heart, is he wanting to use baptism here, not just to give this idea of being immersed into Christ, your union with him, but he actually wants them to think about when they came to faith and were baptized and what that symbolized. So, as the good, some guy called me a baptitarian a couple months back, like I got Baptist in me and Presbyterian within me, and I said, no, I'm just non-denominational. Because the Baptists preach this and they want to say nothing about water baptism there. And the Presbyterians want to use it all about water baptism, at least by the guys I'm listening to. And I think it can be a both and. He is referencing something that is familiar to the Christian to say, oh, when we see that symbol of going down into the water and coming back up, you know um, you are immersed in the waters of baptism. You're completely overwhelmed by them. In a hard way to picture that in any other way, any other picture in life, when are you truly immersed in something? Overwhelmed by it, other than like you're underwater. There's not even like the little bitest part of you sticking out. Do-do-do. Like totally underneath it, immersed by it. And, and that's what Paul is saying is the solution to the question of grace being what? Abused and excused by those who want to just go on living in sin. He's saying it's not a reality Because all of you is identified with all of Christ. You are in Christ. And by being in Christ, you are in his death. And being part of his death means that you died to sin too. You died to sin too. How could you still live in it? Like a literal dead person can't sin anymore. Dead men tell no tales. Can't lie if you're dead. He's saying, you, you don't understand, you asking that question, looking for the liberty to sin, you don't understand something changed in you, and your relationship, going back last week in chapter 5, your relationship, fundamentally and foundationally, between being in Adam and in sin, and born a sinner by nature and by choice, and now in Christ, you are in Christ, and you were made righteous, and like we said before, we sin because we're sinners, We make the choices to sin because by nature we're sinners. Now in Adam, we live righteously because we've actually been made righteous. God in our justification has declared us righteous. It's a declaration. Your justification. God pronounces over you the sinner. When you trusted in Christ, by grace through faith, he declares you righteous. And that is kind of legal um, terminology. Forensic righteousness. It's a declaration about your state. You are no longer that sinner. You are now righteous in Christ. Your sanctification is not just some pronouncement. It's a transformation. He he changes not just you as a sinner. He actually changes you so that you sin less. Your nature from the inside changes. So it's not forensic righteousness. It's for real righteousness. For real. You actually start living a righteous life. Which would be betrayed by the question of can we continue in sin so the grace may increase. Grace wasn't meant to increase to keep you in your sin. It was to get you out of your sin. To be different from your old man in Adam to the new man or the new woman in Christ. And see, why you have to stop and slow down and think about this is because it's all interrelated, brother and sister. I know we like to make hard lines in Romans and say things like Romans 4 and 5 are about our justification. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8 are our sanctification. And 9, uh, they overlap. Because in reality, they overlap in your life. Like God doesn't justify us. And then some of us, he goes, now those really cool ones, I'm going to do this thing called sanctification in them. Like they're going to actually become like me. But, you know, most of them I'm just going to leave in their justification. And that becomes um, a heretical divide in our salvation, as if God doesn't finish what he starts in your salvation, that you are not transformed. So how you play that down to the pew is how many of us might have been raised in a church that was just about getting saved. Come on down and get saved. No talk of Jesus' Lord, which means he's your master which means you should be transformed into his likeness. And you want to say, I could be a carnal Christian. I could be saved and never change at all the rest of my life. But man, see, when I got saved, I was justified. I know the doctrine of justification by faith. Don't back off, preacher. And I say, well, if I don't see any doctrine of sanctification by grace, I'm going to doubt that justification ever happened. And you should too. That's the point Paul's drawing out here. You died to sin. Also notice the difference. You died to sin. You didn't die for sin. So you're not the Savior who gets the praise. To think of it this way, Christ died for your sin so that you could die to your sin. So that you can actually be changed when it comes to the way that sin affects your life on a daily basis. You died to sin. Christ is the only one that could die for sin. And so in dying for our sin and our justification, that it were declared righteous, it's forensic, he breaks or removes, God does in Christ, the penalty of your sin, which is the wages of sin is what? Death. And in your sanctification, if you want to think of it this way, he takes away the power of sin to rule and reign over you. So you can't go on sinning as in continuing in it, living in it. Remember that word abide, said it earlier. Abiding in your sin, uh, making a home where sin reigns and Christ doesn't. Living in sin is impossible for the believer. That's what this text is saying. You can't dwell in it, you can't abide in it. And so you have to ask yourself the question when you look at your life Am I living in sin to the point it should make me doubt whether I am in Christ? Notice I didn't say whether I was keeping commandments 14, 899, and 1072. No, the question of if I'm continuing in sin and still living in it as if it still is master over me, I have to ask the question, is there any legitimacy to my profession of faith that I am in Christ? Now, not to say that as a believer you can't. Become callous to the Word of God, cold to the Word of God, grieving the Spirit, and find yourself a comfortable sin pattern in your life. But then you hear a sermon like today, and if it doesn't hit you square between the eyes right now, I'd be asking that question. I mean, some of you just have to ask, How am I living right now? Are you living in sin? Are you cohabitating? You're living in sin, literally. That's like the easiest one to to just call out. If you're not married, living together, the marriage bed being undefiled, you'd literally be living in sin doing that. And as a Christian, you'd get convicted and go, that's me taking grace to excuse my sin when God wants me to use grace to have sin removed from my life. If you're a married couple, And you're a spouse who has just been bitter. I'm not talking months. I'm talking years to your husband or wife. You know what you're doing? You're living in sin. You're continuing in sin. And you're only out might be when you, man, thanks for grace, God. But there's no change. This hits real practically. When you just think of that idea of living, continuing, on a daily basis, with no conviction to change. Paul would say, may it never be. God forbid. He saves you and changes you. And so, maybe you're now sitting under the word of God today, and like, well, for one, I haven't had somebody get on my case like that in a while. But I am feeling convicted. That's not the preacher. That's the word of God saying, may it never be. If you died to sin, how could you live in it? And the explanation furthermore in verse 4. Therefore, you've been buried with him through baptism into death. And here's why you shouldn't still live in it. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You are a new person. You have a new life. You're in Adam. You're not in, or I'm sorry, you're in Christ. You're not in Adam. Back to Romans 5. So you actually can live differently. That's what I'm saying. We can't divide out justification from sanctification. Now they are different, but they're not separate. As in, one leads to the other. And if you don't have the other, you have to question the one. But the goal of it all, your salvation, is not just to say you're saved live down here for a long time and then get in up there, it's that you would be transformed to walk in newness of life because you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Right there, two chapters over in 2 Corinthians 5. You see... Listen to this, Second Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ controls us. That's a Christian talking. And what does it do? Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That he died for all so that they might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Because you're in Christ. The love of Christ controls you. It compels you. It moves you. You know what doesn't control and compel and move you in Christ? The law. You know the answer for the libertine, the person that's living in sin, Romans 6.1? The answer for the libertine is not to give them more law. What is it? It's to point them to Christ. Just like the answer to the legalist isn't to tell them to loosen up and enjoy life a little. It's to take the legalist and point them to Christ. And how many times in, in I'm first in the list... Prior to understanding union with Christ, I try to fix the legalism in my life with less rules and more liberty. Or if somebody calls me out on the libertinism in my life, being licentious, living it up, abusing the freedoms I have in grace, oh, you know what? I just need to correct and go back to some more rules. You don't fix this by giving it more of the other. Because the problem for the legalist and the libertine, the person that wants to be justified by the things I do or don't do, and the person that says, hey, grace reigns, none of it really matters. Just go on, live how you want to live. The solution isn't to introduce them to each other. It's to point them to Christ. Because both of them need Christ. Because we relate to Christ. Because we have union with Christ. He's the one that fixes both of those things in our lives. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. I am, verse 5, united with him. I'm in him and he is in me. It's a beautiful expression to become united with Christ, to be in Christ. Because now that allows me to know that I'm dead to sin. And because I'm dead to it, I can resist it. It doesn't have power over me and there's no penalty waiting for me. So you have to ask yourself the question do I believe I'm united to Christ today? And in that, am I dead to sin? Last thing, the spectacular implication, you put this all together, verse 5 and 6. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will be like him in his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him so that we can put away this body of sin and no longer be its slave, for he who has died is free from sin. What's the spectacular implication for the Christian here? In your union with Christ, you no longer have to sin. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is my story. This is my song. What's my story and my song? His story and his song. That's what that song's about. It's union with Christ. How do you have blessed assurance of your salvation? To know you have been united to Christ and you have died to sin. And you have a new master and it's Jesus. It's not Adam. It's not you. His story is your story pretty way to say union with Christ all that is his is yours and this is what happens when we're born again justified sanctified transformed now just because and we'll get to more of this next week but just because we have died to sin doesn't mean sin has died to me you died to sin its penalty you won't be damned forever and it's power. You're in Christ and not in Adam. But it's still what? Present. So you're in your flesh. Romans 7 is all about this. And because you're in your flesh, you're thinking, you're feeling, you're speaking, your senses, there's still areas where sin can tempt you. It's still present around you. And you're in your flesh. And, and so you have to fight sin. But it can't control you from the inside. Because we know in the new covenant, in the new birth, that we have a new master. We have a new Lord. He gives us a new heart. And he says here, so your old self was crucified with him. So that your body of sin could be done away with. And no longer be a slave to it. That language is that of master. That you wouldn't be a slave to sin. Because if you have died to sin, you're free from sin. So you picture you know, your salvation in verse 7. Jesus breaks into the prison of sin you were in, owned by Adam. And he rips up your sentence to die. He goes over, and you're you're sentenced to die and suffer forever in hell. Jesus, at salvation, took it off the wall. That deed that hung over your own name said, you will die in Adam, you will die in your sins, and you will go to hell in your salvation. He takes that, and he rips it up. The penalty's gone. Praise God. But he goes above and beyond. What's he do? Like if he just rips it up in the prison and walks out and you're like, hey, over here in the cell, still in my sin. I I know it's good that when I die and get out of here, I'm removed. No, he comes over to the doors and just like doesn't even use the key. Just throws them away and says, you're free. You're free from this fortress of sin. Go live. But the person that says, can I continue in sin so that grace may increase, is the person that's penalty's been paid, cell door's been thrown away, and they want to do what? Go back to the cell and live in the cell. That's what's being said here? Living as if you're still under the power of it when you're not. And this all goes back to knowing, verse 3, don't you know, verse 6, knowing this, your old self, you want to ask, well, Adam, what about, like, do I have, you know, thanks, NES, like, I chip, run, look over to <laughs> Romans chapter 7 and the heading is the conflict of two natures over verse 14. I-, I need to scratch, I know you know I don't like to write my Bible, but I want to scratch that out. You don't have two natures. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. Now, do you still have the flesh? That's what Romans 7 about, the flesh. I remember growing up in my church, I remember a few things, and one was this illustration our pastor used, and you've heard it, the two dogs or the two wolves, whatever you want to use. And uh, somebody asked some sage, uh, one's a bad dog, one's a good dog, and they fight inside of me, and uh, which dog wins? And he, the one I feed more. And it paints this idea in your sanctification as if you are, like, you get saved and Jesus is just added on to your sinfulness. So now you have Adam in you, and Christ in you, and when I'm saying Adam in you, you have sin in you, and you have two natures, and they're just always fighting, so you got to feed the one more. and That's not how sanctification works. And you're, you've been given a what? A new heart. Christ is Lord. You have been changed on the inside. Your battle is against the flesh. But you've been changed. So you're, oh, now you can sow to the flesh, Galatians 6 tells us, And you'll reap it as a Christian. But you don't have to anymore is the point. Because you don't have two natures 50-50 on the inside duking it out. You've been given a new nature in Christ. You're united to him. Which means you're no longer united to who? Adam. Your sin. Your old man that should be put away. So why then do I still sin? Wrapping up. Because I said before... Sin didn't die to you. There's a temptation to go back to it. But you can probably figure this out in your own life. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. I mean, when you still sin as a Christian, brother and sister, I mean, when you really get down to it, and this is between you and God, do you really love it still? Or do you hate it? You hate it. Where does that come from? It comes from in you because you've been given new affections. And you know you've been changed, but you you feel like you're helpless and hopeless to do it. And what Paul is saying today is the first step in your sanctification and moving past that is to know that you have union with Christ. And you can change. And you can stop sinning. Because... The power of the gospel to salvation for the Jew and the Greek transforms us. It's not just information about what's going to happen when we die, it changes you today. Sin's power to rule you and penalty to damn you. Now, if you're not in Christ today, you don't have the power to resist sin, and the penalty for your sin still remains. So, what's your way out? It's Christ. Give your life to Christ today. See your sin for what it is. It controls you from the inside. And it might control you in the way that a legalist would be controlled to try to perform, to try to be good, to try to impress, even God. Or the other side of it, the person who just wants to do whatever they want to do. But either way, Christ needs to be Lord of your life. And you need to repent of your sin and trust in Him. Put your faith in him today. Come to Christ, who removes the penalty and removes the power. And you can ask him to do that today. Cry out to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for the wonderful truths that we're going to be looking at for the next couple weeks because they do give us hope. It's hopeful, Father, for you to tell me, your son that I can stop sinning and it be true. And that could be more like your son. And that's the goal. So we thank you for that. May the love of Christ control us today as we go. May even as we sing now, our hearts be lifted up because this is just the best news we could have. That that which you started in us, you will bring to completion for your glory. Amen.